This week on Let's Connect. I also think that there are like real, of course, serious issues that people are dealing with. And by reporting on them, even if they're negative, maybe some change can happen. And I think that that is, from the reporter side, what people are trying to do with maybe a negative story. It's, I mean, the Me Too movement isn't a positive story. It, there's positive outcomes in terms of justice and truth-telling. But I think from a reporter's perspective, working on a negative story usually means that it is important and there's something going on here. And maybe by telling that story, we can get to the bottom of why this is and change can be made. Welcome to Let's Connect. My name is Keith McPherson, and I'm so glad you've decided to join me for this next episode. Let's Connect is a podcast that interviews people from all walks of life who have inspiring stories to share about who they are and who they're becoming. As a life coach and someone who's genuinely curious about connecting with people, spirituality, mindfulness, and what this world is all about, I'm here to ask powerful questions, share my insights as well, and to really connect on a deep level to help us all grow in awareness of who we really are. So sit back, relax, and let's connect. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Let's Connect. Is it just me or do you find that the news stories these days are just so tainted with negativity? I find that, you know, if you listen to it over the span of a day, just the same stories tend to repeat over and over again. And they're so negative that I end up feeling terrified, exhausted, frustrated, depressed, all the energy that I don't want to be feeling. And uh, I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Why is it that the news is so negative? And yet, you know, these these slight little positive news stories drop in and, and they, they can be really inspiring and uplifting. But why are we focusing so much on the negative versus the positive? So today joining me on the podcast is a, a friend of mine, Allison Hall, who's a, a reporter for Insight Edition. And she has some incredible perspective on this and so much more about what's going on in our world today. I recently put a social media post out through my um, my following to just talk about this idea of, you know, don't um, spend your days listening over and over again to the news stories because, you know, it's good to be informed. I'm not saying don't listen to the news, but, you know, be conscious of when you're listening to the news because so much of it is truly negative and tainted. I'm also just so fascinated right now by... Uh, what is real news and what is fake news? You know, and, and this idea that through artificial intelligence, and if you've watched this, uh, The Social Dilemma, this documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, they talk about how now, you know, with the retargeting of ads and the catering um, to our accounts about what our likes and interests are, sometimes we don't even know what the real news is anymore. So I wanted to get to the bottom of this and, and talk with Allison about what does she see as the future of the news being in that industry and uh, how can we mindfully be present while we're watching the news and listening to the news. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit about Allison and then I'm going to invite you to tune into our conversation today all about the news mindfully the news. Allison is a multimedia journalist based in New York City. She's currently serving as a correspondent and producer at America's longest-running national news magazine, Inside Edition. Uh, Allison's first independent documentary short was published online by Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, to much critical acclaim. 
With Inside Edition, Allison has traveled across the United States, telling the stories that people talk about and share. She has covered the biggest stories of the latest decade, uh, from Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 and currently in 2020, to how America is adjusting to the new reality of COVID-19, to serving as a court reporter for the landmark Me Too movement in the cases both involving uh, Weinstein and Cosby trials. She actually was there in the courtroom. Allison is equally versed in legalese as entertainment jargon, having covered award shows, red carpets, and get this, the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in 2018. She comes to the table with so much experience about journalism. We're going to find out how she got into it and her current perspective of the stories that are happening right now in the news. So without further ado, everybody, please meet my friend, Allison Hall. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. I'm so excited that you're here joining us live. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, I understand this is the first time that you've been interviewed on a podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's the first time I've been interviewed on a podcast. And I've been interviewed before, but I'm usually the one doing the interviewing. So it feels a little funny, but I'm excited. Yeah, well, thanks for being open to it. I have been following your career for quite a long time. And just watching you grow from from being a Winnipegger to now a New Yorker, it's just incredible, like your story and your journey. So I'm really excited to share this with uh, the audience today. Thank you. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to go all the way back before you were um, a journalist officially, um, just to your first independent documentary short that you did that ended up in the Globe and Mail. I, I'd love for you to just tell us how, how did you create that and what was it about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I was a journalist working in New York uh, at Inside Edition. And um, when I I went to journalism school at Ryerson uh, University in Toronto, and I was putting myself through school and I was always working like at least two part time jobs. And uh, I was a babysitter It was one of them. And I responded to an ad uh, for a babysitting job. And I met this incredible family and they hired me as their babysitter slash nanny. I was at their house all the time and would help get the kids to school sometimes and stay over when the parents were out of town and just really became a part of uh, this really incredible family's life. And um, that family was the Irving family or um, one of the sons of the Irving family. And uh, I mean, at the time, I had no idea the significance of that name. It's a, they're a pretty well-known family in the East Coast of Canada uh, in the oil business. And to me, it was just an awesome babysitting job. And these people were incredibly generous and supportive of me. And it was wonderful because I was always very homesick from Winnipeg. And so it was nice to be in a family home and feel included and a part of something with people who cared about me. And um, of course, it was also a great uh, part-time job I was while I was going to school. So Flash forward a couple of years later, I'm living in New York, uh, working as a journalist, and I stayed in touch uh, with the family, the parents, Ken and Tasha, over the years. And they reached out to me and said that they were coming to New York and would love to take me for lunch. Wow. So I uh, met up with them for lunch and it was so great to see them. And uh, Ken basically started just telling me his story and uh, what he had been going through and a lot of what he had been going through when I was babysitting for them. And uh, at the time they hadn't confided in me as their babysitter. I like, you know, just basically had a, a strictly like with the children relationship with them. Um, so I had no idea what he had been going through. 
And they told me at the time and started talking about how he might be ready to share his story. Mm. And he and his family had been in the media a lot in Canada, especially, and even down in the States, the Wall Street Journal had done a big article, but he had never participated. He had never been um, interviewed for any of these articles, and at least not in a way that he felt was truly representative of what he had been going through and, and what had happened. Um, and I mean, being the curious journalist that I am, I kept probing and asking more questions and, and curious about what he had been through and learning about uh, his struggles with mental health and how, uh, I mean, he's the CEO of, he was the CEO of this ginormous company and learning about what he was going through behind closed doors that wow. no one knew about. And I just, as we're sitting there, I think we were like eating Italian. I like dropped my spaghetti and it's just like, this is a huge story. <laughs> <Wow>. And <laughs> you know, to hear from a CEO or a former CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the world and in Canada to hear that uh, he had struggled privately and how it had affected his life and his family and his career and the way that he came out on top and, you know, sitting in front of me, he was doing very well. I just thought that it would be so powerful for people to hear from him uh, and to hear from a man, especially. Um, yeah. I mean, mental health affects everybody, no matter their gender, age, race, social status, whether they're a janitor or a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. But we don't often hear from those you know, CEO type people. We see people with success and with money as just that. Yeah. Uh, we don't necessarily pull back the layers and realize that, you know, everybody's dealing with something. So. I mean, through that lunch, we started talking through his story and um, he was very generous in allowing me to be the one to help tell that story. And we basically just went from there and started setting up um, the interview that I would eventually do with him later that wow. summer. Um, and I wanted like complete editorial control over it. I wanted uh, to be a part of the process, like the executive producer on it. Um, and so basically I made this short documentary uh, and then I shopped it around to media outlets in Canada who I knew would be interested in his story, who maybe had tried to get an interview with him in the past and he had never done anything because he didn't, you know, he wasn't ready to come out. And I think it was a bit easier um, in the coming out sense uh, about his mental health to somebody that he knew. Wow. Um, and I mean, that's basically it. The, the Globe and Mail was interested and then they did their own piece, which was really well received. Uh, a, a written article by an incredible journalist named Erin uh, Andreessen. And she was wonderful. And I, I helped along that process. Wow. And then they paired my video next to it. And um, it was it was incredible. Wow. Uh, the response to it was was really just all I could have hoped for uh, in in creating it and making the documentary. And I think for for Ken, it was really rewarding to see that it resonated the entire time that we were working together. Mm. Anytime he uh, would be nervous or would be uh, weary about the process, you know, it takes a lot for somebody to open up so bravely. Um, he would just say, if I can just, 
help one person with this story, if one person sees themselves in me or asks for help or perhaps gives help to somebody that they know, uh, then I'll have made a difference. And That's amazing. Yeah. And when yeah. the article and the video came out, he got inundated like thousands of letters and I even got hundreds of emails and letters people telling me that they had seen it and what it meant to them wow um, like the power so, yeah the power of what you do as a journalist like I think it's often overlooked you've spent like so much time um interviewing people discussing their lives revealing their lives and I just if you took me back to the very beginning of this like when did you decide that this is what I want to do <laughs> I want to be a journalist yeah, it's it's a bit of a funny story um, because I actually always wanted to be an actress. Oh, yeah. And um, I was in, I like grew up uh, in Vancouver and then in Winnipeg. And I wanted to be an actress for as long as I can remember, except I also wanted to be a teacher. And when I was really, really young, um, I used to like line up my dolls and I would basically, you know, teach them an English class with a little chalkboard <laughs> yeah. and put books in front of them. And then I would do a performance for them and I would then be like the drama teacher. <laughs> and I was always like performing or teaching or writing. I would be sitting at my desk writing. So my mom is amazing and she was really great at encouraging each of uh, my siblings and I when we had a passion or talents, she would really foster those. So I like, I remember being a kid and she would always compliment me on my creativity and my performing, but also on my writing and on uh, things that I was interested in. And I loved to read. And so she would always suggest books for me to read or get me new books. Or I would be, she would encourage me to go to the library. Like I'd be eight years old and I had a library card and I would ride my bike around town and go to the library by myself and take out books to read. Wow. I was just such an avid reader and writer and all of that. And I thought that it meant that I should be an actress. And I pursued acting in my like young teenage years. Um, and I uh, had no success at all other than at the time I thought it was a pretty big deal I was cast on Falcon Beach in oh, a wow. guest star role <laughs> that was a big Canadian uh, show exactly That's amazing but it was I mean I thought that I had it made I thought that my whole life was about to change that I had this ginormous <laughs> role and that like you know I might as well not even go back to grade 10 at Kelvin because I'm going to Hollywood like I thought it was just the best thing that's ever happened to me and of course I mean, it was one episode and I think I had 10 lines to begin with. And by the time the episode came out, they had cut it down to like three lines in the editing process. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then I continued to go on auditions and I actually saved money myself. And I lived in Vancouver for a summer with my grandma and I would go on auditions every day when I was 14 years old. And my grandma would drive me to auditions and I also stayed with my aunt and uncle and I would bus to auditions and I didn't get a single part all summer. I did oh get an agent goodness. and that was a big deal. And I was really excited about it. But, and my agent would send me out on auditions and I didn't get a single part. And I was obviously devastated about that. But of course, like knowing now I should have just probably stuck with it. It takes a long time and you have to go on a million <laughs> auditions. Yeah. Um, but being 14 and thinking that my life was about to change and that all I needed to do was go on auditions and something would happen. I can, I just want to pause you. I can totally yeah. relate to this. We were like <laughs> yeah. kindred spirits at that age because I used to go out for auditions all the time and I never landed any of the roles either. 
And my brothers would always get them. And they were like the sports guys in the family. I'm like, <laughs> how did they land this role? So I was always devastated too. I totally yeah. relate to this. Yeah, but, I really thought but, if you want it, it should be obvious you should get it. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm the one for the part. So yeah. this is what I'm, I'm curious about. Like, So how do you go from you know the pursuit of wanting to be an actress and then landing this amazing spot at Inside Edition in New York? Like, Take me through that transition because that's incredible yeah. to me. Yeah, totally. And sorry, so like literally I'm telling you my life story. <laughs> I love it's it. It's a long <laughs> one and yet I'm only you know 29. Um, so basically, I came home from that summer of wanting to be an actress. I continued to do auditions in Winnipeg and abroad, but I was like, heartbroken one day to my mom. Just, you know, my dreams aren't going to come true. I'm never going to be an actress. Hmm. And I swear to God, the news was on. CTV uh, National was on the TV as I was crying to her. And she was <laughs> consoling me. And she looked up and she pointed at the news anchor woman. I don't even remember who it was. And she was like, Allison, I don't mean to downplay your dreams of wanting to be an actress, but I think that you should be on TV as a news anchor. Like, wow. This is the job for you. Moms always I, know. They, they know. <laughs> they and do. I looked up at the woman and I like it all of a sudden it dawned on me. I was like, oh my God, that is what I meant to do. I have this all wrong. And she was like, you love reading, you love writing. You're so curious. You're so independent. You're always doing all of these things. That is what journalists do. And you love performing. So like not just being a writer journalist, which is an amazing job as well. But she said, you know, if you love performing and you want to be on TV, that's the way to do it. It combines all of these talents. Wow. So basically, like from that night, I completely switched and like suddenly I didn't even really care about acting. And I just decided I was going to be a journalist. And a couple years later, applied to Ryerson uh, in Toronto uh, and Carleton, actually. And then I went to Carleton for a year, switched to Ryerson. And then basically, I mean, there's still a lot more that happens on my way to Inside Edition, but that's like the big transition to being a journalist and I've never looked back. And every wow. time I tell a story or do something like with Ken Irving, I just like pinch myself. I'm like, this is what I was meant to do. And I, I mean, I just love it. And it's all thanks to my mom looking up at the TV and going, I think that's it. <laughs> that's incredible. So how, how did you land the job at Inside Edition? How did that come about? Yeah, so, uh, so basically uh, when I was in, university. Uh, it was my dream to get to New York. Um, I was very ambitious. And uh, when I decided I wanted to be a journalist, I like knew that I wanted to be a journalist in New York. I wanted to work for a national show. And I also like I should have realized I wanted to be a journalist earlier because I would watch uh, Barbara Walters and Oprah from the time I was like seven. Like my mom would come home and I'd be watching Barbara Walters, like the most fascinating people. Right. Like watch some cartoons. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so once I decided I wanted to be a journalist, I was like, I'm going to be Barbara Walters or Oprah. Wow. And what do they do? Like they work in the United States, Oprah in Chicago, Barbara Walters in New York. I like New York. I'm going there. Amazing. And, yeah. And there's actually another Winnipegger, um, Ashley Banfield, who is from Winnipeg and works in New York as a journalist. And wow. a friend of a friend, uh, like a family friend had told me about her and had said, Allison, like, I know you're going to journalism school this fall. You should talk to Ashley Banfield. She works at ABC News in New York. 
So they connected us in one of those like classic blind emails. Um, and Ashley was so gracious and talked to this like 17 year old girl about to go off to journalism school and gave me great advice and said, stay in touch. And basically once I was in uh, second year university, I emailed her and said that I was applying for an internship at ABC News in New York. And did she have any advice? Wow. And she was great. And I think sort of helped push my resume to the top of the pile. And I went to New York for an interview and she met with me as well. Uh, and that's basically it. I got the internship and I, I credit her completely with helping with that process. I don't know if they would have looked twice at a random resume from a girl from Winnipeg when they have, you know, all of these kids applying from across the United States from very like well-known Ivy League schools. Right. But um, Allison, it was about time. I mean, after all of the yeah. struggle of trying to be an <laughs> actress, finally exactly. your, your day came in. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I always just thought if you want something bad enough, it should happen. So finally I love that it. came true. Yeah. Your determination got you there, at yeah. least working in the, the industry of like showbiz yeah. in a way. I'm curious. Yeah, totally. I'm curious about this. Um, like, just in the role of of being a journalist, like I, like I was saying earlier, oftentimes I feel that they get a little uh, downplayed because you know they're interviewing and they're kind of behind the scenes in in a way. I, I'm just curious for you, like when you're when you're behind the scenes and you're asking questions and you're trying to reveal stories, like what do you find is the most challenging part of your job as a journalist? Yeah, so a couple of things, um, like on a pro in a practical sense. Uh, especially because I work in daily news right now and our show is really fast paced. I would say that uh, it's just getting like the sound bite that you know is going to be good uh, uh, for the show. Yeah. And uh, that also is obviously like speaking the truth and represents the story in an accurate way and is honestly coherent and said in a full sentence mm. um because i mean with something like this you're you know not editing it we're speaking live people can listen to the full context of my story and then decide for themselves right. but when we're editing interviews and only pulling one sound bite you have to pick a bite and like that is representative of so much larger than just that bite right and that means as an interviewer, you have to ask questions in a way that elicits those responses. Mm. Um, so that's really hard in a practical sense. And then the next hardest thing I would say is speaking to so many people, learning, you know, often the most important thing to them. That's why they might be in the news. And then only using that one soundbite oh. and I develop relationships with people and I talk yeah. to them for hours sometimes or I've been talking to them on the phone and convincing them to do the interview and then the nature of the business is that we use something that is this big how do you uh, how do you know when you've got the right soundbite like how does that get decided by or who gets yeah, who decides so that and how a, does it's it get a group decided? process uh, okay. one thing I learned too with working in national news is there's like we have huge teams working on every story so there's a lot of input from various people uh who are very experienced and very talented uh, at it mm -hmm. um and then just with experience so I've I've now been in my role for almost seven years and interviewing like hundreds probably thousands of people and so I now just sort of know what to look for. Wow. Um, but with that, it really helps having a great team. And yeah. I might suggest a bite sometimes or or think that we got it. And then the senior producer will go, oh, I'm actually going to use this one. And here's why. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very lucky, like working at the national level to have that big of a team and also to have people who are incredibly experienced and great at their jobs to learn from. Totally. I'm curious about this too. I, I mean, I often watch for fun, uh, the newsreel bloopers on yes. YouTube. And I'm just curious if you, if you think back, like, do you ever get in those situations, embarrassing moments? Like what might have been like one of the most embarrassing moments so far as a journalist? Um, yeah. So, uh, I would say for me, um, I get thrown into some pretty hilarious situations. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I got on air at Inside Edition because like, I basically will say yes to anything. Like that's not illegal or like crossing any lines. Um, but basically if there's some sort of like a demonstration or something that needs to be done, Um, they are like, Hey, Allison, are you willing to do this? And I usually say yes. And then I go do it. So (laughs) with that, I'm thrown into some pretty embarrassing moments. One of them that just comes to mind is I had to, there was a um, water slide that it was completely 90 degree. It was a complete 90 degree angle. (laughs) And basically to get onto the water slide, you stand on a piece of uh, plexiglass and then they press a button and the plexiglass releases from under you and you go straight down. And you were demoing it? Yeah. And it eventually levels out, but they asked me to demo it on camera. Oh my God. So I had to wear like, you know, a modest bathing suit because I'm on TV and, uh, they put a GoPro on my head and they <laughs> filmed me and I was terrified. Like, I don't like water slides to begin with. I don't like roller coasters. I'm not like a thrill seeker. Yeah. And here I am pretending to be cool and calm and collected on national television, standing on a piece of plexiglass that is about to be taken out from underneath. Wow. That just takes out like all your like trying to look good on camera, I imagine. <laughs> Precisely. Woo. Yeah. But you Crazy. know, because of things like that, and there's another time like they stuffed me in the back of a trunk to demonstrate uh, a person who had um, escaped from a kidnapper. And wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And so they, again, they love the GoPro stuff. So they put a GoPro in the trunk and then I was in the trunk and then I had to find now all trunks have little buttons where if you find the button, it releases from the inside. Right. Uh, so they basically wanted to see whether an average person, me could find that. <laughs> and then they filmed me like jumping out of a moving car. Wow. This is like the combo of like being an actress, a journalist and a stunt and person, a stunt right? Double. <laughs> this is incredible. You've had the totally. full gamut. Totally. But honestly, it has made me not very nervous on camera because Mm. if you ask me to do all of these crazy things and I might be terrified at the time, but then I do them and they come out okay, like standing in front of a camera with a microphone seems pretty easy compared to all of that. Mm, Totally. What, What moment are you most proud of in this work? Um... So definitely with my job at Inside Edition, uh, definitely working in the past couple of years on the stories to do with the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, So it started uh, really with the Bill Cosby stories um, when those stories started coming out, I think in fall 2014 or 2015. Um, Feel free to anybody to fact check me on that. If I'm wrong, I I apologize. It was definitely fall and I hadn't been there for that long. 
And um, I started speaking with women who had been abused by him. Wow. And I followed that story all the way to his uh, court case. And I covered both of his trials in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, of course, so the first trial was um, a hung jury. And then the second one, he was convicted. And then the sentencing, of course. And then I just recently covered the Weinstein trial, uh, the entire thing being in the courtroom every day, uh, all the way from conviction to sentencing as well. Wow. Um, and then have spoken with several of his victims uh, and accusers um, over the past couple of years. And I think, I mean, that's just such important work and um, to be a part of helping uh, these women tell their stories and speak their truths. And for some people, they haven't spoken their truth or told their story for 20, 30 years. And it's been living inside of them uh, as a secret. And finally, they're they're sharing what happened to them um, to be able to be a part of uh, that release um, is I think just really important as a journalist and for them to be finally heard and listened to. And then of course, with all of these stories happening and all of the media outlets uh, covering it is what ultimately encouraged the prosecutors to press charges in both of those cases. Um, so not that I was a part of that, but I think with all of the media interest around the world, uh, it definitely had a big part of it. It's interesting. Cause I, um, first sort of heard about this movement happening. I don't know if you're familiar with Gian Gameshi from CBC mm -hmm. in Canada. And like, for me, that was like the catalyst moment where all of a sudden we started hearing about Me Too from his story. And I'm, I'm just curious, from your perspective, where do you think this all started? And, and like, why did it start happening? Totally. Um, from my perspective, it was yeah. actually the Bill Cosby uh, accusers. Um, but it's interesting because the the phrase Me Too and the Me Too movement wasn't until I think a year or two later, once so many of the media figures in New York um, started being accused, hmm. um, both with Weinstein and there was Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer. Um, and I mean, there's there's been so many now, um, but it was once when that waterfall happened and people started talking about where is this coming from? Why are all of these women coming out now? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was Alyssa Milano who had a friend who said the phrase me too. Um, and women started posting on social media. Um, you know, basically you may be seeing this in the media and all of these women are speaking about various men. Um, this happened to me too, simply. Right. Uh, and then it became a movement, but really in my mind, it, the Cosby accusers really started that trend uh, it, much before that. But because uh, the waterfall of the other men came later, um, it didn't really become a movement until then. Right. Got it. It's incredible just to hear your like firsthand perspective on on some of what you've experienced in in this work, and especially on on that kind of a story. Um, I also know that you've been covering the uh, the movement, the Black Rights Movement, um, this whole this whole piece of the puzzle that's happening right now. And I'm just curious, your perspective, you know, being a, a white female reporter covering that, what's that been like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, I have been covering um, Black Lives Matter and uh, some of the tension that exists in the United States between police and uh, Black people and the various violence that has occurred 
over the past couple of years since 2014, basically. Um, And I remember being a part of or walking in protests uh, as a journalist, a journalist in 2014. Um, There was Black Lives Matter protests going on in New York and and they were considerably large. Um, But I remember at the time seeing it was mostly Black people and a lot of young people, um, but mostly Black. And I remember thinking to myself, when I would see a white person, either young or old, and sometimes you would see, you know, somebody in their 30s or 40s with a young child, and I would think, that's so wonderful that there's white people here. But I remember it was an anomaly. Uh, It was not in the majority at all, and not even 50-50, not even close. It was it was remarkable that there was one or two people there. Mm-hmm. And the difference that I've seen covering uh, the movement this summer, especially in June, was the amount of white people, quite frankly. Mm. And uh, just covering it as a journalist, uh, I mean, I'm not necessarily considered one of the people at the protest, but I'm walking alongside all of these people and just the amount of allies who are there, um, young people, old people, um, a lot of elderly white people, um, which I may, maybe sounds funny to say, but it is interesting to see when people think of this movement. Sometimes they think of, you know, just millennials. Yeah. And at least in New York, it's such a diverse place. And it's also, um, it's definitely very liberal. And walking along and seeing, you know, an 85-year-old woman, white woman in a wheelchair uh, join just as people are walking by her house. Mm. Um, I I literally spoke to a woman who was 85 and said that she's been fighting for this her entire life. And she was so happy that she had the chance to be a part of it now as well. Um, So I think that that has just been really interesting to see the change over the past several years of the amount of people getting involved and realizing that this is not this is not a black person issue and that until everybody gets involved no matter your race or the color of your skin uh it's a discussion that needs to happen among everybody and everybody should be angry about it and should be interested in in working on it um not not just black people because i mean it's the problem lies within uh, the white community that has not been listening and not been showing up uh, in the right way for all of time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I uh, There's so many news topics I'm curious about your perspective on as we're talking. Another yeah. one that just comes to mind is, you know, I recently watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen this yet. But all the power of, you know, Facebook and our social media and the retargeting of ads. I've also recently heard about this artificial intelligence coming. I think it's already here in some places, voice recognition, where they can basically duplicate our voice in like a two-minute conversation and then, you know, have us record a whole audiobook without actually speaking the words. Like it's insane what's going it's on. Terrifying. It is. And the the implications of this have been like really concerning me over the last little bit around, you know, when we're we're listening to the news now, like how do we even know what's real and and you know, to deem Donald Trump fake news, but how do we know? Because we're basically getting fed news based on our interests and likes and beliefs. So like how do we navigate that in these days? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um 
I mean, I think the biggest part is just not getting your news from just social media. Uh, and that's easier said than done. Um, I'm a news junkie. I have to be. It's my job. Mm -hmm. um, so I read a million different sources. I listen to podcasts. I I also definitely learn about various things from social media, but I check the sources. Um, I hesitate to, to look at or to take any sort of meme account that is dealing with serious issues mm. um, seriously. And you have to make sure that people who are... Um, and that goes also, though, with saying that people using social media uh, in a, there are people using social media to spread news in a productive way and in a good way, but you have to make sure that they have reputable sources and then go and actually read their sources. If somebody says, is quoting a study on social media and they say that the Wall Street Journal released it, go and make sure that the Wall Street Journal actually did release it and re read that article. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that's, the biggest thing, the days of, you know, waking up and grabbing your morning newspaper and just reading that one paper are, are long gone. And I mean, that's how I grew up. I would read the Winnipeg Free Press every morning with my family around the breakfast table. Mm -hmm. um, I think now to be a smart and engaged consumer of the news, you have to have a whole repertoire of sources and you have to find ones that you trust, but that are trusted broadly because, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely sources out there that people trust that aren't uh, right. trustworthy. So I think going with uh, established media um, and uh, and following what they uh, what they're working on, but also, you know, making sure that you're not if you read the New York Times, also read the Globe and Mail. If you watch CNN, also watch MSNBC. And, and those are obviously uh, examples that are very American and tend to be maybe on the left. So also read some Wall Street Journal. Um, sure. I think basically just being aware of what everybody is saying about an issue rather than just one source. Right. One opinion. Interesting. I'm just thinking too about how, you know, certain companies, news stations would probably have a bias depending on who the investors are and what their political views are. Do you, are you seeing this as well in, in this industry? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think that there's probably some of that. Um, I think the really reputable agencies, like obviously the New York Times is the, the pillar of that. Um, I think that they do a pretty good job of separating um, those interests. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, and it's also never something that I've been exposed to uh, it, where I work at all. Like news, it's very important for newsrooms to maintain complete editorial independence from whoever may own them. Um, and honestly, I think that that would be very, it would be very organized. Like we're just trying to get the show on the air. I can't even imagine thinking like, oh, you know, what do these people think about it? Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm sure there is some of that somewhere. Um, but I think if you're going with more reputable established sources also who are very transparent, um, if there are ever connections with a reputable news source, that news source will say, you know, one of our investors is a part of this company that we're reporting on. Uh, and I think that being transparent about it, and when you see that sort of transparency, you can know a little bit more that they're trustworthy because at least they're admitting it. And they're maybe they might even say how they're handling that cross 
section and, and how it might work together. Got it. I'm, I'm curious as we're talking to you, just what do you see the future of the news, the industry of the news? How, what do you see the future being? Just where are we going in terms of what we're going to see? A million dollar question. If I had the complete answer to that, thoughts, uh, I would thoughts. be doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there's definitely, there's been an extreme democratization of the news the past several years with social media, but just with the question that you just asked me of how do I know what to trust and how do I find something that's reputable? Um, and how do I, you know, get the real truth? I think that there's a real need for that. And so I actually think that the pendulum might swing back towards people really looking for like very trustworthy and honest news and yeah. maybe sway away from the social media and from uh, the way people are consuming news and, and dispelling news right now, which is just like an overload of information. I actually think, I mean, even the New York Times podcast, The Daily is so popular. And I think people love it because they trust the New York Times. It's a great, it's just simply a great podcast, but it's also, they give you the information in such a great like nugget it's 25 minutes and you feel like you really understand an issue mm. and i think that using that model i think a lot more uh, news organizations are maybe going to pick up on that people don't want to be reading it takes a long time to be a really informed news consumer you have to read a lot you have to consume a lot and i i think that hopefully at least i see it there's going to be more uh, trustworthy sources doing that like pared down uh, reporting, like similar to that yeah. podcast, which is doing it in an innovative way. Like, you know, the New York Times didn't have podcasts probably 10 years ago. So that's something that's new, but they're they're using their old ways of integrity and truth and reporting in a new medium, which I think is really cool. That is cool. You know, I'm also curious, I have so many questions for you about this. Um, your opinion on this, like, why do you feel people gravitate towards negative news? I mean, when I turn on, I, I even encourage people not to always watch the news like constantly because it's on rotation, gets into my DNA and it's just, most of it's negative. And I'm like, Ugh. curious, why, why do we gravitate towards negative news versus these positive news stories that ultimately would make us feel amazing? Totally. I agree. And I love positive news stories and I always like try to find them Go uh, and report on them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's also what I love about Inside Edition. They, they do a lot of really positive stories and like inspiring young people or people helping people, especially with the pandemic. That's what we really focused on is the various ways that people are helping each other through this time, mm. which I love. Um, as far as why that uh, is what people are gravitating towards. I unfortunately think there's like a couple of things, but from a consumer's perspective, I think people like the, the drama. I think they think it's interesting. They want to know why it might, it makes for a good story. Like, would you ever watch a drama on TV that was just like simply no drama? Right. Um, <laughs> well, I think back and, to like Mr. Rogers. I absolutely love that show. And I, I mean, yeah. there was, but like, you were a child. About the show. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Presumably. <laughs> presumably. Yeah. Um, and then I also think that there are like real 
of course, serious issues that people are dealing with. And by reporting on them, even if they're negative, maybe some change can happen. Hmm. And I think that that is from the reporter side, what people are trying to do with maybe a negative story. It's, I mean, the Me Too movement isn't a positive story. It, there's positive outcomes in terms of justice and truth telling. But I think from a reporter's perspective, working on a negative story usually means that it is important and there's something going on here. And maybe by telling that story, we can get to the bottom of why this is and change can be made. Mm. Uh, and by reporting on it, you know, you're just serving it up and people can do with it what they will. But I completely agree, you know, only watching um, news and some of the negativity, especially going on right now, it's exhausting. So take it, read it, be interested in it. Think about what you can do to help maybe if it affects you, but then put on Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I like that advice. That's good. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your new podcast that just came out as well, Between Headlines, and would love for you to share a little bit about it and what inspired you to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So basically with what I was saying before um, about the thing that I find really challenging about my job is I meet all of these incredible people and we end up using one or two sound bites and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the nature of the business and that makes for great television and great for a great news program. Um, you know, people don't have an hour to, to watch one person. Um, but I think in the podcast format, uh, there's a lot more of an appetite to really uh, put on your headphones and get lost in somebody's story and really dive deep into who they are and what they've experienced. Mm. And I'm a big podcast consumer myself. I always pop on my headphones and I clean or I make dinner or I go grocery shopping and you can just learn so much from other people. And so for years, I've been meeting these incredible people in my line of work and I sometimes really connect with them. And I just think I, mean, I want to tell their story in a deeper way. I want to go, you know, beyond just the, the headline of the story and what the big news item is, but I want to know who they are, what keeps them up at night, what's going on with them. Um, wow. One of my first episodes is with a woman named Jeanette Sonerchia. Uh, and when I met her, um, with Inside Edition, I, she was just so incredible. And she was one of the reasons why I decided to start the podcast. I was speaking with her and she was telling me about her husband who had suffered from ALS and he unfortunately passed away. Mm. And she was this very tiny woman. And as we were talking, it came out that she would have to like help him. If he fell out of bed, she would personally lift him. So she was going to CrossFit so she could be strong enough both mentally, but also physically to lift her husband. Wow. And I just thought like, I mean, not only is that incredible, but that tidbit of information is something like that you only learn by really getting to know somebody and really learning their story. Yeah. And it just shows like just the tenacity of the human spirit and commitment and like love in that marriage and how hard she worked to make sure that he was comfortable. And I just remember learning that information and thinking like, wow, I wonder if there are other people out there who maybe have a family member who's dealing with something and they too were going to the gym to provide for them in this way. Or, mm. you know, there's obviously lots of examples sure. of that, 
but that was something that just made me go like, okay, there's, there's more to the story here. So I finally just decided to, to go for it and to make a podcast out of it. Wow. That's, I'm really, really excited to watch that grow and develop. And I'm totally appreciating the part of you that has this like open hearted, loving part of what you do, like that you would actually slow down and have the conversation with the people you interview. Like, it's going to be amazing. I'm, I wish you, you so much success with that podcast. And thank you. I'm going to put that down in the show notes so people can check it out and subscribe and really get into the deeper stories you're sharing because that's incredible. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, a few other things. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, we're friends on Instagram, so I yeah. follow you on there. And it, it sounds like you've been through quite a bit in the last little bit. I mean, uh, I understand that you had a bit of a breast cancer scare. Yep. And then you got engaged and it was yep. all like, kind of. With, it seemed like within a month or so. It was. Yeah. So, it was actually within a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm just curious, like what you make of this and how did you deal with like the extreme ups of getting engaged and, and the down moments of this cancer scare? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, 2020 has been a really crazy year for everybody uh, and myself included. Um, I thankfully, I had a bit of a cancer scare back in January and I learned that it was most likely not cancerous. I found a small lump in my breast, which obviously freaks any woman out, but um, especially me as my mom battled breast cancer. She's now almost 15 years, um, cancer free, which is incredible. But of mm. course, knowing what she went through and watching her, uh, I'm particularly sensitive to, um, to the issue. And so finding a lump in my breast was very scary. And then of course, you know, all of the appointments and waiting for results and all of that was terrifying. Um, the one thing that got me through it was my boyfriend at the time. He's mm. incredible and so supportive and so loving and uh, obviously knows my history and was just wonderful. And I actually was scheduled to have surgery in April uh, to have it removed. And then the pandemic hit. And I remember uh, in early March, the hospital here in New York called me and said that they were moving my surgery. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And they were like, you know, we, we are canceling all surgeries um, that aren't like super urgent. Um, and we'll reschedule it another time. And it was before coronavirus had really hit New York. And I thought like, wow, that's a bit extreme. Of course, only two weeks later, I was like, okay, I mean, that was obviously a very good idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going near the hospital and nobody should be who doesn't need to be there. Um, so basically then this summer, as, uh, things were getting better in New York, uh, you know, they called to reschedule and, um, rescheduled for October. And it just so happened uh, that my boyfriend was planning to propose to me uh, at the beginning of October. <laughs> wow. Um, so it just, it fell all together. He proposed on a Saturday and it was so wonderful and so joyful, of course. And uh, I had my surgery on Wednesday. And I remember thinking like, you can't wear jewelry to the hospital. And I was like, oh, I'm not even going to get to wear my engagement ring that day. <laughs> what an up and down moment that would be. Yeah. Because <laughs> wow. uh, of course, when you first get it, you're so excited. Yeah. Um, but it was so nice. It felt good knowing that he was going to be with me in the hospital um, as my fiance. And just, you know, there's something special about the the permanency of that. Mm. And knowing that he would be there, you know, waiting for me when I came out of the operating room um, 
And I joked with the nurses, like, is my fiance there? And it just, it was just a little, it honestly provided a little bit of levity and excitement for the day. And um, that was otherwise uh, a bit of a scary experience, but ultimately the right thing to do. And I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah, absolutely. And I just really appreciated you being a voice for for women around that too, around breast cancer and posting so vulnerably and openly about it. Because um, I think it's important that we talk about these things as opposed to just kind of hide them. So, and you're all clear from what I understand. Yes. Yeah. I actually literally just got a call from my doctor like an hour ago saying that the oh. uh, results came back of the thing that they took out and all clear. Um, so that's great. Um, but yeah, I just... I mean, I would have never, wouldn't have ever expected at 28, almost 29 years old to find a lump uh, in my breast and who knows what it could have been or grown into or changed into. And so, I mean, I know just from speaking with various friends, like not everybody um, thinks about it because they just think I'm young. I I don't need to do self breast exams. Um, And I think, you know, if anybody read that message and thought I need to start doing that, um, that then it would have been worth the vulnerability. Um, but yeah, it's always a little scary to put stuff like that out in the world, but, um, the response was, was great. And, uh, I've had people, you know, say, okay, I'm going to start doing self breast check, self breast checks. And that's great. That's all I want people to do. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, okay. Just back to the news for one moment. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, I just was curious if you could interview anyone in the world, who would it be and why? Hmm. Honestly, what instantly comes to mind or who instantly comes to mind is Meghan Markle. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I, I just love her. I honestly, though, I would worry with that. I would want to do an interview with her and probably have it be like private and I wouldn't have to release it as much as it would like be a career maker. Yeah. Um, I, she's such a public figure and she's been through so much that I actually think that an interview with her, while it would be incredible and she handles herself beautifully and has such important things to say, um, I would want to know like the really vulnerable side of her. And I think with what she's been through, it's very hard for her to share that with the media who I don't think she trusts very much. So I don't necessarily know if it would be the best interview in terms of what I'm looking for, unless it was, you know, just two girls chatting. I think that she would have a lot to say and I would want to hear it. <laughs> you came you came close, I, I understand, because you covered their wedding. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would say close. I was standing outside <laughs> her wedding and watched her drive by in her Bentley. Right. Um, but yeah. You're like, I'll get to that. you. One, I'll get to you one day, <laughs> Megan. We need to chat. Exactly. I'll be writing your biography. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I just, before we wrap up, I want to direct people again to your, your podcast. So it's Between Headlines com. You got to check this out. And uh, Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to to drop in here and share about your life, your story, the amazing work you're doing. You're you're really a positive force in the news, and I uh, I see you and I appreciate you. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Keith. This was so fun. I really appreciate it. All right, well, that concludes another episode of Let's Connect, and I hope that it's inspired you as much as it has me. Thank you so much for tuning in, and remember to subscribe to both the YouTube channel and the podcast channel, and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of Let's Connect.